The Teachers College at Emporia State University presents How We Teach This. Today, our guest on How We Teach This is Dr. Scott Poland, and he is going to talk to us about how we can improve and promote school safety. Thank you for being here. Would you take a moment and just introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about how you came to be invested in uh, the topic about school safety and preventing violence? Well, thank you. And I hope to say some things that will be helpful and meaningful to every single one of you. I began working in the schools in the early 80s. Pretty quickly, I was made the director of psychological services for the third largest school district in Texas. And I'm really sorry to tell you, we had a couple of school shootings. And I began presenting and writing about school crisis and school safety. I have six books that I've authored or co-authored on this subject, but can I still remember responding to that first school shooting and really having very little idea of what to do, but wanting, you know, desperately to help the students, teachers, and the families. And it is so important that we have a team of people involved in not only responding to a crisis, but working on prevention. Essentially, there's three levels to crisis intervention. Primary prevention, what are we doing to stop the crisis from ever occurring? And a really big frustration I have is that we've not taken guns out of the hands of children. I actually testified in front of the U.S. Congress in 1999 about school violence prevention. And please know that I'm not questioning any adult's right to own a gun. I'm simply going to say, with that right, it's a responsibility to safeguard that gun from a troubled, angry, impulsive, depressed, mentally ill person that might reside in your very own home. So I guess the bottom line for all the adults listening is, I believe the guns in our homes need to be secured. The research tells us that more than 80% of the time, the gun the kid brought to school to shoot someone came from his home. And by the way, we have virtually never prosecuted parents in this situation. However, in Oxford, Michigan, those parents have been in jail now for about 16 months. But there's a little bit of a difference here in that those parents had clear warning signs that they ignored about the mental illness of their child, and yet they bought him that gun only a couple of days before the shooting. So primary prevention is a big part of this. And then the next level is secondary intervention. I have actually responded on site to 17 different school shootings, all of the major ones that immediately come to mind. I was there trying to help as a psychologist, and I actually received the Helping Parkland Heal Award from the city of Parkland. There's a third level to this, because secondary intervention what do you do in the first few days, maybe the first week? And most crisis intervention is very short term. And here's the good news for everybody. About 60% of the time, 
no matter how staggering the tragedy, you're going to be okay. Your family, your faith, your friends, the things that help you cope. At about 20% of the time, we would expect minor problems. Sadly, about 20% of the time, we would expect major problems. Probably never read about the suicide of Greg Barnes, Columbine basketball star. He hung himself on the first anniversary. Yes, he was smart and popular and a phenomenal athlete, but he lost two of his best friends in the shooting. He was next to Coach Sanders when Coach Sanders got shot. He was trying to stop Coach Sanders from bleeding to death. So there's a lot more to this than just whether somebody is popular or smart. Right. It's really about paying attention to what's called geographic proximity, psychosocial proximity, and trauma history prior to the shooting. Now, I'd like to spend a little time talking about the real facts about school shooting. And I covered this in the most recent book, which is Lessons Learned from School Shootings, Perspectives from the United States. Here's the bottom line, and nobody wants to hear this. Most kids get murdered at home. They get murdered by their own parents. Schools remain the safest places children go. Now, having said that, one school shooting is one too many. But a school shooting rocks the psyche of all of us. And largely, the media covers school shootings extensively. In fact, it could be a shooting in a high school parking lot at 2 a.m. on a Sunday morning that had nothing to do with teachers and staff, and it's going to be covered as a school shooting. Now, here's some good news. Most school shootings are not the mass violence that scares us so much. Most school shootings are actually accidental with the discharge of a gun. Most school shootings are not inside the building. They're in the parking lot. And then, sadly, a number of other school shootings were a suicide. A kid took family gun to school and died by suicide. So when we start looking at these mass shootings, like Uvalde, for example, like Parkland, the good news, we have very few of those. And by the way, we've always had kids murdered in school. All those years ago, when I was a student in Lyons, Kansas, I mean, there were still kids that killed somebody at school, but they killed somebody they were really angry at, somebody they knew. They probably didn't shoot them. They probably stabbed them. But in recent years, we've had shootings committed more and more by students who attacked their own school, and they actually shot, injured, and killed people they didn't even know. And then I'm always asked, what is the motivation of a school shooter? It's one of two things, and it could be both. Glory. And unfortunately, our media gives them glory. There are actually parents in Colorado that started a foundation called No Notoriety, trying to get the media from taking such a deep dive into every aspect of the shooter's life or their 
getting even. They're angry. A phrase that's even been used is grievance collector. So they believe they have been really wronged. And at the simplest level, and this is something teachers could think about, we want every school to be a place that every student likes, a place where they have connections, they feel successful, a place that they would never think of harming someone. And at the simplest level, here are a few of my thoughts for teachers. First of all, does every one of the students in your class have a trusted adult at school? It goes up to me. Every classroom teacher in America would have an activity next Monday morning where kids are asked to identify trusted adults. And when would I get the most concerned? If a kid doesn't have a trusted adult at school. Because what I really believe, most school shootings should have been prevented. The kids talk to their peers about their plans. And then the question is really, why don't kids come forward? Why didn't they tell us? Here's what they said. I did not think a shooting could happen. I did not want to get involved. I feared retaliation. I have been conditioned not to tell. I imagine everybody listening could finish this sentence. Snitches get what? unfortunate. Everybody knows that one, isn't it? I wish everybody knew, see something, say something. That's a national mantra. And some kids will say, I just don't have a trusted adult to go to. And that's really sad. And actually, I just did an interview here with a high school kid wanting to come to my university. And I asked her, do you know about Fortify Florida? the anonymous reporting system we put in place in the aftermath of Stoneman Douglas shooting. She had no idea. So it's literally like, why don't we have posters up in hallways and classrooms and making sure kids all around America know the anonymous reporting system? So those are some initial thoughts. And Christy, I, I think you probably have a question or two. And I mean, I can go on and say a little more about things teachers can do, but I want to stop and see if you have a question. You were talking about three suggestions for prevention. If you'd clarify what those recommendations were for the prevention for me again. Sure. So too often in a crisis, people focus pretty much only on what do we do in the first few hours? What do we do that day? What are we doing for a day or two? And that's what's called secondary intervention. It is very important. We want to make sure that nobody feels alone. Nobody thinks I'm the only one that can't sleep. I'm the only one that keeps replaying this. I'm the only one that's afraid to come back to school, for example. But prior to that, and this is where schools, I think, are a little <sighs> lacking. Fewer school principal, Christy, I would say to you, okay, school's going to be out here in a couple of months. As soon as it's out, let's get our team together, our crisis team, some key teachers, and let's talk about what happened this year. How do we respond to that? Can we do better? 
Is there something else we could do to prevent something like that? Do we have our students involved enough in school safety? And let's talk about that more in a moment. So that's all primary prevention. How do we prevent this tragedy from ever happening? Secondary is what we do in the immediate aftermath. And tertiary, I was using the example of the Columbine basketball student. I mean, he died by suicide on the first anniversary. He didn't get enough help. And where is the help for staff and students that need it for months? What about the first anniversary that's coming up of the death of someone? What about the graduation they're not going to be at? Are we sensitive to closest friends, siblings, family for that ongoing help that might be months and years? And here, here's the group of people that I've met. Parents that lost their kid in a school shooting. And almost to a person, they have formed a foundation. They're trying to do things in memory of their child to make a difference so that this doesn't keep happening. And then students, here's, here's a great thing about students. I like to refer to it as the gift of hope. They want to get involved. They want to make the world better. Maybe it's raising money. Maybe it's raising awareness. Maybe it's starting a chapter of students against violence everywhere. Maybe, you know, they're going to get involved with students demand action. You're probably familiar with moms demand action. Well, there's now a student organization. I, my greatest hope would be maybe the younger generation will make some changes because I personally believe strongly gun violence is a public health epidemic in America. And people often respond the best when we phrase it all in terms of gun safety. And the only thing I've said so far is keeping guns out of the hands of children. I mean, it almost seems like, why would anybody disagree with that? And then I'll go a little further to say, does anybody really believe we need an assault weapon to go hunting? I grew up hunting in Kansas, okay? We don't need an assault weapon. It's a weapon of war. So those just seem to be common sense gun safety. But we went 30 years without passing any national gun safety legislation. And it's a start from last summer. But I think what I'd really like to focus on at least for a few minutes would be getting students involved. And I mentioned a couple of possible organizations, but school safety is really an inside job. And how do we get a commitment from the students first, then the entire faculty, parents, and the community? In my previous school job in Texas, I developed what are called safety pledges. There's an elementary version. There's a secondary version. So what's a safety pledge all about? I will let an adult determine the seriousness of a violent threat. I will report the presence of a weapon on campus to the nearest adult immediately. I will work on controlling my emotions and getting along with everyone. And of course, I know that 
And we we had kids sign it. We had parents sign it. And maybe in some of our schools, you know, we just sign this and move on. But in our best schools, there was discussion. And I'd like to give an example from when my wife was a high school principal. It was a massive high school, 4,000 students. Please know, I'm not a fan of massive schools. It breeds anonymity, lack of belonging. You want to be on a school team, you better be gifted and you better have been on a travel team, okay? Right. There's only room for five starters on a basketball team. I know. So, I mean, I like to say this, Christine. At Lions High School, I had 82 kids in my class. You know what that meant for me? It meant I was needed. Scott, you want to play football? Here's your uniform. Hey, you want to march in the band at the halftime of the football game? Do that too. You want to part in the play? It is yours. That should be our goal, to have every kid connected to the schools, the staff, and every kid having some extracurricular activity, not just going home at 2.30 in the afternoon. Okay. Very true. So the large high school. It had 137 homerooms. So what did my partner do? She had every homeroom elect a school safety representative. She met with all 137 of them once a week. Hot button issues were taken to the principal's office immediately. A script was given to all homeroom teachers at least twice a week to discuss safety. Not every teacher was on board. Some were like, I teach chemistry. Don't expect me to lead a classroom discussion about safety, but you can do this. You need to do this. Here is the script. And before we had anonymous reporting, the students came up with the idea of putting little mailboxes in the hallways. So if you had a concern about safety, you put your little note in the mailbox and APs checked it every period. Maybe something's brewing. And sadly, some kids want to see a fight. They're like going to other kids and saying, you better hit him. You better hit him first. You're never going to live this down. Everybody's going to call you a chicken. Right. And we actually need to teach kids something like this. Go up to your friends and say, yes, he's talking a lot of bad stuff about you. Violence has a timeline. It doesn't happen today. Probably never going to happen. Hey, didn't you just go get some wheels for your car? Man, I love those. Where'd you get those? Costco? Come with me now. We're going to go out this door and go look for some wheels for my car. So I purposely was taking them away from where I knew somebody was waiting to possibly fight. And I'm saying, you don't have to prove anything to anybody. Least of all, me, your good friend. Come on, we're leaving now. So if we had more students that that's all about de-escalation. Right? These are the kind of things we can discuss in our schools. And I remember my son saying, and it was the large high school. Oh, dad, it was terrible. Everybody wanted to see the fight. We all jumped up on top of the cafeteria tables. We broke most of them. And by the way, it's really about removing the audience. Most kids truly do not want to fight. Now, I'd be remiss today not to talk a little bit about bullying. Bullying is connected to school shooters. 
two-thirds of the time, according to the Secret Service, the school shooter was the victim of bullying. Two-thirds of the time, the school shooters were suicidal. Well, those two points have obvious implications for us for school safety. If we have really comprehensive suicide prevention programs, we might just prevent a school shooting. If we really have good bullying prevention programs, and by the way, no kid deserves to be bullied. Sadly, sometimes they'll say, when this happens enough times to you, you start to think you deserve it. Right. No kid deserves it. And what's our role? Our role is to intervene. Consequences for the bully. No, I'm not keeping this a secret. Everybody is going to be watching. You keep doing this, the consequences will escalate. And we need support and intervention for the kid that's been bullied. <laughs> I'd really like to talk about the area of the school. This came up just the other day with one of my students who is doing a practicum in a local school. Would everybody just think for a moment, what is possibly the place in the school where the most violence might occur? And I'm going to bet, Christy, you just thought of the bathroom. And I'm not going to say this is going to be easy to change that. Uh, the more there's not a door that's closed, the more there's a little wall you walk around, that's going to help. The more that bathroom is located near a principal's office, that's going to help too. So, but here's a simple thought that teachers could suggest in their school. Ask the administrator, let's give everybody in first period a copy of the floor plan of the school building. Uh, let's ask them, shade in any area where you don't feel safe. We're immediately going to know where we need to increase our supervision. Now, let's even be more sophisticated. This floor plan is labeled before the first bell. Where don't you feel safe? This one is during the school day. This third one is extracurricular after school. So what have we found out in some places? Bathroom's a problem. We covered that. We have maybe the science teachers that never want to get in the hall and supervise. Everybody has a responsibility in this. And I've actually had teachers in a large high school say, I don't want to be in the hall. There's thousands of kids moving around at the high school. They're big. Your presence in the hallway makes a difference. We might have a problem in stairwells. We probably have a problem in PE locker rooms. Let me quote my wife for you. She sat down with the coaches and said, I've had the last conversation where I explained to a parent how their kid got his nose broken in your locker room. You're going to sit right next to me and explain, where were you when this happened? So mm -hmm. it's almost like students have the answers and we have to be smart enough to get their input. And there are surveys out there that can be used or just good old-fashioned what put together a task force. So I'd like to ask the teachers to think about this for a moment. How often is school safety discussed in a faculty meeting? Does your school have a safety task force? Are teachers on it? How are parents involved? 
How were students involved? And schools should welcome input from the community about making the school safe. And right now, way too much money is being spent on what I would call hardware measures. School safety is a multi-billion dollar industry. Last July, I was one of the keynote speakers at the National School Safety Conference in Orlando. So I look at the four-day program. I'm like the only psychologist. I'm certainly the only person talking mental health. No. Everybody else is talking active shooter drills. And when I go in the exhibit hall, everything was about shot detectors, shot blockers, bulletproof doors, bulletproof whiteboard. And the other day on the USA Today, I didn't click on it, but there was a video about schools should have a safe room. Really? How are you possibly going to have enough safe rooms? And then, do you know that school districts could put like a little concrete bunker in every classroom? And by the way, what message does that give kids about a place where they should feel safe? And if you were to Google safest school in America, you'll have a principal in Indiana proudly saying this. I just push a button. All the hallways fill with smoke. So the bad guy won't be able to find their way. Does that make any sense to you? It's like, what is missing is, and let me quote one of the founders of Sandy Hook Promise. You know what the problem is about school violence? Too much of the focus is on the moment of the school shooting. That's a shot detector. That's a smoke cannon. That's the idea that we should arm teachers. And I'll come back to that in a moment. But everything would be about how do we stop a kid from having the gun in the first place? How do we have enough mental health professionals in school? I train school psychologists. I train school counselors here. And by the way, I didn't really cover my current role, but I direct the Suicide and Violence Prevention Office at NSU Florida, which is, I think, the eighth largest private university in the nation. And previously, I was the president of the National Association of School Psychologists. So with some authority, I can tell you, school psychologists, what do they spend their time doing? Special education assessments. They're not doing counseling and intervention. Right. School counselors. I just said I train them. I just talked to one from Brazil before this conference. Okay. What have they spent their time doing in today's world? Clerical scheduling and testing. So, first of all, we need to free those individuals to actually provide mental health services. Yeah. And then right now, 20% of the schools in America have an opening for a mental health professional. We got to attract more people to the profession. And a guy named Dr. Langman, he's written several books, and I interviewed him, and his interview is at my website, and maybe when it's appropriate, uh, Christy will provide them that website. Yes. Dr. Langman says three types of school shooters. 
a psychopath. I imagine everybody listening knows what that means. They lack a conscience. They never show remorse. They feel superior, godlike. They actually can be quite charming, and they're really great liars. Okay, So that's an example of what Langman said, Eric Harrison from Columbine. By the way, I did respond to Columbine. We could go on for hours about that. But Columbine kind of set the blueprint. And we do need to be concerned. Some kids are fascinated by school violence. Right. They're literally doing papers on them. They might fill their bulletin board at home with pictures and clippings. They want to, like, make a pilgrimage to Columbine. These are all things we should be paying attention to. So what's Langman's second type? Psychotic. This is someone who does not have a good grasp of reality. They're hearing things. They're seeing things that simply are not there. I also led a national team in Paducah, Kentucky. And Langman says that school shooter, Michael Carneal, was psychotic. And by the way, his attorney has tried to get him a new trial, okay? Because saying basically, he's been on the right, you know, antipsychotic medication. He's safe now. Well, he's probably never going to get a new trial in Kentucky because he killed three people and wounded five at East High School. So what's the third type? Traumatized slash depressed. And by the way, I also interviewed Mrs. Klebold. And I think Mrs. Klebold, Dylan's mom from Columbine, a pretty brave person. And all the proceeds from her book go to prevention. So what what'd she say in the interview? I basically failed Dylan. If I'd had any idea how depressed and suicidal he was, I would have gotten him help. And it's actually been said, and I agree with it, Dylan Klebold went to school to die, mm -hmm. knowing others might die. Eric Harris went to school to kill people, realizing that he might die too. Yeah. And I also led a team in Red Lake, Minnesota on the reservation where a kid basically altogether he killed nine and then he died by suicide. But very quickly, what do we know about that kid? When he was eight, his dad died by suicide in a standoff with tribal police. When he was nine, his mom was brain injured in a car accident and placed in a residential setting. He was severely injured uh, as a child. He was treated very badly by mom and her boyfriend, like locked out of the house during Minnesota winters, made to stand in the closet for hours as a punishment. He attempted suicide several times. He was described as a black-garbed loner. So depressed and suicidal. And I do believe if we had more mental health services, if we identified young people early on, having worked with kids now for 40 years, when a little kid has problems, and we don't get them the needed intervention, by the time they're 15, it's almost impossible to figure out how do we turn this around. And I think you had something that you wanted to ask. It's a very good point. 
I, I don't know the answers of how we can get more support and more mental health professionals to support our students. But I think you're very right that the student who's not handling elementary school stresses and has been exposed to too many tragic and, and uh, traumatic things, they need more help. What do you think is the absolute most important thing that teachers need to know? Do you have any hope for us that are still in the classroom who see that student who's afraid to come to school? I do have hope, and I do believe that self-care is truly important. You know, we've all been through a lot. And when we want to talk the pandemic, the political polarization, the racial tension, global warming, war in Eastern Europe, there's a lot. And teachers need to engage in self-care for themselves, and they need to provide those activities to our students. And although probably everybody listening is thinking school shootings are totally out of control, really, we had more school shootings in the 90s than we do right now. One is one too many. But we can't lose track of the fact that schools remain very safe places. We need to work on protecting children, not just in schools, our homes, and in our community. And I'd like to go on record as saying, I am totally opposed to the idea of arming teachers, which we're doing in about 25 of our states. No. But know that no professional education association, no professional law enforcement association has ever said, arm a teacher. And I'm going to quote Frank DeAngelis, who I know well from Columbine. Here's what he said. When I walked out of my office that day and I saw Eric Harris with a gun, he might have had a gun. I don't think I could have shot him. And even if I'd shot at him, God forbid, I could have hit somebody else. Mm -hmm. I really, I am a believer in school resource officers. And I know that often people want to see some things that are different after a school shooting. But there's what's called the software side of this. The software side involves relationships. It involves anger management. It involves things in the curriculum. And we do have states in our country that have the appropriate numbers of school mental health professionals. Pretty much in the East, okay? We're in New York today. They're going to tell me there's one school counselor to every 250 kids. That's exactly the recommended ratio. We're in Florida, where I'm sitting right now. It's one to 500, okay? Wow. So how is it that some states fund schools better? And I like to say that, first of all, every kid is somebody's son or daughter and deserves our very best. But I also like to quote John F. Kennedy, who basically said, the children right now in your schools, they represent the future of our country. And I've spent a career prioritizing, focusing on the needs of children. I've had the chance to share these views four times before the U.S. Congress. And I do believe we can make a difference. We need more resources, yes. But we need to build a relationship to make sure every kid feels connected to their school and to staff members. And we need to welcome input 
from our students? What are their concerns? What are your ideas to keep yourself safe? And by the way, anybody who Googles me, Scott Poland, Poland, just like the country, lots of things come up. And the website at my university is a pretty simple one. And it is Nova, N-O-V-A dot E-D-U forward slash suicide prevention. You're going to find a lot of resources, a lot of interviews. Many of those interviews do have to do with school safety and school violence. And the last thought I have is talk to your administrators. Find out if there's a school safety task force. If there's not, get one started and welcome input from teachers, staff, and parents. I think that's uh, very good advice. I appreciate that. You're very welcome. And thank you so much for your time to be here on the podcast with us today. It's nice to have someone from Kansas back talking to us in Kansas. Thank you. You're welcome. If you are interested in getting more information about the websites and the organizations that Dr. Poland has shared with us today, be sure and check out our website because I have posted on there a link to his presentation with lots of resources and information, as well as a link to his website and some of the other parent groups about school safety uh, that he's mentioned in our interview. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode and will subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. This podcast has been brought to you by the Teachers College at Emporia State University, featuring talks with experts and educators, addressing topics that can help you as an educator, a parent, and a person. We release new episodes every other Wednesday. You can get more information provided by our guests on our website, www.emporia.edu slash HWTT. We would appreciate it if you could help us spread the word about the podcast. You can follow us and share on Twitter with at HWTT underscore ESU. You can find us on Facebook. Just search for How We Teach This. If you would like to be a guest on our show or are willing to give us some feedback, please send us an email at hwtt at emporia.edu. I'm Christy Dugan, the executive producer. You've been listening to How We Teach This. Thank you.